0: We recently launched Liberation Martial Arts Online for trainers, collectives, and individuals that were looking for a program to follow that was chud-free or perhaps one that came directly from us. Thanks to TG Saltero, Derek LaSalle, and Arthur for signing up. If you would like to sign up for Liberation Martial Arts Online or you just want to increase your financial support for the Salpa Project, you can find special tiers on our Patreon. If you'd like to listen to all of our shows without any breaks or interruptions, you can find uncut versions of our shows also on Patreon. This is Sam, and this is Fight Study. This episode was produced by S.H., M. Shelton, and New Guy. This is Fight Study Muay Thai Edition. Rather than talk about a UFC card, we're talking one championship. who just had their first Prime video card for U.S. viewers. And not only are we talking about one, we're going to be talking mostly about the Muay Thai fights. And then the main event, rematch, between champion Adriano Moraes versus Demetrius Johnson. To help me break down this striking centric episode, I've brought two guests. We brought back our Muay Thai analyst, Ron King. And along with Ron is one of the OGs of the Southpaw community and another resident Muay Thai enthusiast, Ben White. Hi, guys.
1: Hi, how you doing, Sam?
0: Hello. So Ben, since this is your first time on the podcast, can you tell us a bit about your martial arts journey? And how you got into Muay Thai, and what draws you to it? I've been doing Muay Thai since 2010. Um, a friend of mine uh,
1: moved into a new apartment down the street from a gym that w- had a big banner outside that was advertising boxing and Muay Thai, and she knew that I had always been interested in combat sports. I had uh, recently stopped fencing after 11 years, and I was looking for a new sport to get into, and so. I went with her to check it out, and I was hooked from the first day. Um, so I was boxing, doing Muay Thai, uh, both at the same time, sometimes one, sometimes just the other. And in 2014, I spent six months in Thailand training and fighting full-time. And Since I've been back, I, I still train. I don't fight anymore, um, but
0: uh, still like to keep the skills sharp, and I occasionally help train people at the gym where I go. Do you find any similarities between Muay Thai and fencing? I think the uh, you know in fencing the amount of force that you're hit with is
1: irrelevant. It's you're connected to an electrical circuit, and so any sort of contact is um, counts the same as any other. And so it's very important not to get hit. And I think that that, that idea um, transferred really well for me when I started boxing, started doing Muay Thai. It took a little bit of time to adjust because the difference is the length of your limbs and not, you know,
0: thirty-six inch piece of
1: steel in your hand. But the concept is very transferable.
0: So let's get into some background on this card. During the weigh ins, nine fighters either failed the hydration test or missed weight. Several of the fights continued as catchweight fights and some had to be canceled altogether. In the main event, Marias, who came in heavy and dehydrated, somehow came back later, lighter, and hydrated. One has several times criticized US shows for being too much like pro wrestling, but I have to say there's something very pro wrestling about one's weigh-ins and hydration tests. Now with that preamble out of the way, let's talk about the first Muay Thai fight of the night. It's Diandra Martin versus Amber Kitchen. Martin won by decision. This is the only Muay Thai fight that went to a decision. And to explain how judging works for Muay Thai and even for MMA in one, the fights are judged in their entirety rather than round by round. This fight was three three three-minute rounds in MMA gloves. Elbows, knees, and clinching is allowed, but no ground fighting in Muay Thai. Ben, what do you think earned Martin the victory? The thing that struck me the most from this fight is
1: that neither of them did a very good job of setting up their attacks in closing distance, and so what it really came down to in the end was when they did come together and they did land. Martin was landing heavier and cleaner, and so in a in a fight where neither of them was closing the distance uh, tactically, I guess you could say, when they did come together, eventually. Um, the person that was more physically gifted, uh, Martin, much bigger, longer legs. Um, her combinations with her hands were very tight, and I think that's I think that's what happened.
0: Ron, what are Muay Thai judges looking for that might be different than what U.S. viewers might be used to when judging a fight?
1: Yeah,
2: this is a very good question, and I know you know people have and done entire seminars on judging for Muay Thai. So to simplify it as much as I reasonably can, the, you know, the way to view a Muay Thai fight, especially one, even though one championship is different than like what people would call stadium Muay Thai, stadiums referring to like a, like Lumpini Stadium or Ratchadana Stadium. Basically, either way, you want to look at the fight more as a marathon rather than a sprint. Meaning in the US, due to the influence of boxing, we're mainly looking at fights round by round mathematically, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. That's, that's okay. But in overseas, they're looking at not who starts the strongest, but who finishes the strongest. So, and this fight specifically is a pretty good example of that because, you know, Amber Kitchen, despite her layoff, came out the first round fairly strong. And I know personally, when I've had layoffs from fighting, you know, I've done the same thing where, you know, you're rusty, you want to get back in there, and you want to go hard, especially in a three, three round fight, which most Muay Thai fighters prefer five round fights for that exact reason. And so she was finding success early on. But as Ben pointed out, because neither of them were really closing the distance that well, it was a game of inches at that point. And because DeAndre Martin is a very long fighter, and was able to get the slight edge as far as her hand combinations later on in the rounds then i could definitely see why they gave her the gave her the fight at the end but i think both of them you know raised their stock in this fight like they did a very good both of them clearly showed that they're competing at a very high level in muay thai and props to props to amber kitchen for coming back and looking as good as she did even though she lost and i hope She's able to get a fight again relatively soon. Same with DeAndre Martin. But as we've talked about outside of the show, you know, one championship, if you really look at it outside of the Muay Thai fighters and even only certain Muay Thai fighters, they're not as active as they really could be, especially when you're under contract and now you're part of a big promotion, you know.
0: Next, let's talk about Superlek, Kiat Mukao versus Walter Gonzalez, where Superlek won by round one elbow KO. Ron, tell us about both of these fighters.
2: Well, I'm gonna get into Kiamu Kao as like the, their gym. So Kiamu Kao is where, very well known in the stadium scene in Thailand because one of their main fighters, who's he's been retired for a while, a uh, Singdam, was one of Sanchai Sanchai's biggest rivals in the stadium and probably one of the handful of guys in the stadiums when Sanchai was still actively fighting in the sta- in the stadiums in Thailand that could give him easily give him a run for his money if Sanchai didn't come correct. But he wasn't the only one out of that camp who was that good. And Superlek was basically the second generation after him that rose to the top. And he's been fighting internationally in Thailand at the highest level for years. And Walter Gongalvez is also, despite his age, he's only 24, i'm aware i've been aware of walter for the past probably maybe six to five years because he's another he's another foreigner who's been living in thai who was living in thailand full time fighting actively i believe he was able to acquire a championship boat in thailand while he was fighting out of there i think i believe the gym he was out of in thailand was a revolution gym in phuket thailand and uh Brazil, a lot of people don't know this, but Brazil has a very strong Muay Thai scene, even though, you know, a lot of people associate Brazil with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and then, uh, you know, just general grappling. But, you know, Muay Thai has been pretty relevant in Brazil for a decent amount of time. It just gets overshadowed by MMA a lot. So there's a lot of very talented Brazilian Muay Thai fighters, either, you know, going back and forth between Brazil and Thailand and also living in Thailand full time and fighting actively against you know maybe not maybe not necessarily against the highest level ties but you do have a f- couple who are fighting in the stadiums against very top level tie fighters who you see these guys in the wbc rankings you know wmo world muay thai organization rankings. so like brazil produces a lot of muay thai talent so i was very excited for this matchup and i'm kind of shocked gonna call this got stopped that early but at the end of the day super is operating on a level that's even above a lot of TIE fighters in his weight class. So like it wasn't really anything that Walter did wrong or glaring errors that he made. It's just that he went in he got into the ring with a guy who, you know, people are going to look back, look back on this time and look five years later and be like, yeah, super was a problem. You know,
1: I really liked this fight actually. Um, and I think it was a, a really good, illustration of some things that I feel pretty strongly about in Muay Thai. Um when you look at Gonzalez, he's a high level fighter, right, as we just heard. Um and obviously he's in this matchup so he's he has some credentials and he has some skill. And when you watch him fight, he even has clean technique and I for me, there's a lot of traits that make up um a fighter and I think that technique is the most important for me. Um, and even though he didn't have many technical errors, um, it was just the, the different level between them that made the difference. So there's a a saying that comes to mind when I watch this fight, which is that perfection is not achieved when there's nothing left to add. It is achieved when there's nothing left to take away. And when you look at the two of them, Gonzalez is moving in and out, he's switching his stance and it's just a lot of extraneous movement and against somebody that's not at the highest level like Superlek, that might be even an asset if not something that you know wouldn't be a negative um but when you're fighting somebody whose technique is so clean who's so perfectly on balance and embodying the spirit of muay thai anything that you do is going to potentially be an opening and so if you're switching your stances and you don't have a plan for what to do to follow up then you're going to get you're going to get hit um and so you know he got he got caught with the same lead elbow i think three times and it finally knocked him out and that's i mean that's what happened if you if you step in if your plan is to move in and out, and your opponent knows that, because um, it's all this, they, the commentators were saying that he this said in, in an interview that I don't know if Superlek had access to, but it was pretty clear that his plan was to move a lot, to move in and out specifically. And it's not a big movement for Superlek to just step in with that lead elbow, and he caught him with it three times, and that was, that was the end for him. Another thing that this illustrates pretty well, and I think this is going to come up in uh, another fight that we're talking about soon, is the the limitation of the boxing guard in Muay Thai, where you put both your hands up and you shell up, That's, that'll get you hurt in, against a high-level Muay Thai fighter because it does nothing to help you control the range, and most commonly, what's going to happen uh, in that situation is you're going to catch an elbow, right? Um, and that's exactly what happens.
0: So what is the best way to block that type of elbow where it's coming up right down the middle like an uppercut?
1: Step one is don't let them throw it, right? But that's not always um, practical. Uh, step two is don't be there for it. Um, and that's why I was just talking about the limitations of boxing guard. And that's why it's so common to see use some variation of the long guard where you're extending one or both hands um, and you're using that to control distance right and that that extended arm would keep them out of elbowing distance um and it also uh covers pressure. so like for example if you're an orthodox fighter and you're extending your lead hand for your long guard you're you also want to make sure that you put it High enough so that your left side of your chin is covered by your shoulder, so you're you're not completely exposed on that side either. If they get past that post, um, so for me, that's those are the first two, and then from there, you know, if you get close enough to land it, I and mean, there's different ways that you can cover the front of your face, but at that point, I think that you know you're you're kind of asking, what do you do when you're one move from checkmate? You know what I mean? Like, I I just wouldn't let myself get there. That's easier said than done. But uh, that's, uh, I think that that's the most instructive answer.
2: I'm of the same philosophy, especially some if somebody is as high level as Superlek, you know, that is, and also, let me add this, they're wearing full rounds gloves, too. So that makes the boxing guard even Less that that high guard, that traditional high guard with the forearms blocking, you know, that gets taught a lot, especially in the States, because I've come to realize, and in that a lot of like traditional, well, I guess, quote unquote, traditional Muay Thai instructors either just don't really want to get too much into the boxing element, or if they do, they have more of a bias towards, I guess, what we call Dutch kickboxing, where the emphasis is on the hands a lot but both tend to be a little bit too overzealous and use utilizing the high guard too much. When in reality, when elbows are coming to play and especially when elbows come into play with four ounce gloves that are what four, literally we're talking four ounces away from being, you know, bare fisted a, a short spear elbow can negate that guard instantly. And somebody as good as super is going to be able to get that through at will. And so when you know that and when you have that in your mind, you know, there's ways to defend and to nullify it, but it's much, e- like, like Ben said, it's just so much easier said than done. And like, it's hard for me to sit here and like play armchair quarterback and be like, yeah, because could have done this, but like, I'm not, I'm not in the cage with super So there's only so much that I can say <laughs> to give like advice, but like, yeah, I like to use the long guard personally when elbows, knees are getting involved, clinching is getting involved. One, so I can use my arm as a frame to be able to feel where my opponent's at, And I can also kind of get a feel for whether or not a striker's coming or if they potentially might grab me and get into uh, cl- and start engaging with the clinch. But even if I do use that long guard, there's still ways to get around that with other elbows. You can counter with, counter it with knees. You can move it out of the way. There's a lot you can do to nullify that, but it at least gives me a chance to be able to deal with the elbows rather than mistakenly believing that if I keep my forearms protecting my face, that's going to be able to stop a very sharp part of my, uh, my opponent's body from being able to get through. Like there's better options to use than just that high guard, but Again, easier said than done. That's why we keep repeating.
0: Well, let's get into something you mentioned, the small gloves, because this is different in that in one, they're fighting with MMA gloves and in a giant circular cage where you can't rely on the ropes to corner somebody, but also as a place where you can then rely on the ref to reset it. You don't have those normal resets. You're dealing with a much bigger surface area and you can't rely on corners to walk your opponent into. So this changes a lot. So how do you think then that this affects Muay Thai fighters and their strategy?
2: I think any Muay Thai fighter, like this is like if any like there's any aspiring Muay Thai fighter, let's say you're a foreigner who's like rising up to the world rankings, you want to get that one championship contract, do you? You know, if you want to do that. I would highly suggest. I know a lot of Muay Thai people hate MMA, but I honestly would highly suggest people who want to enter into that organization, they really want to make that their goal, start watching a event. Because when you're in a cage, especially a big cage, even if you go to a regional mixed martial arts fight, you you enter into a big cage, then you have to fight differently than you would in a ring, and then you add the gloves onto that. Now you really got to fight differently. And you got to have some boxing acumen and not just, you know, a few preset combinations and then, you know, like the high guard we were talking about. You got to have some real, like, good reflexes, boxing knowledge, because those punches and those elbows, as we saw, can get through extremely easily, even if your kicking is on point. Unlike in a Muay Thai fight where, you know, I could be teeing off with my kicks, which this, I'm speaking about this from personal experience because my style would be considered, you know, Muay Thai or a heavy kicker. You know, I kick, I've had plenty of fights where I found success mainly using my roundhouse kicks, keeping a tight guard, moving around, kicking, kicking, boom, 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 repeat, boom and repeat for the three to five rounds. However, would that strategy work in a, with mixed martial arts gloves and in a cage? Fuck no, it would not especially in one championship, just because when things get through easier and the ring is bigger, you have to find that balance of being able to keep a safe distance, but also being aware that anything that you do, there is a huge opportunity for you to get countered and potentially knocked out. And to go back, to go all the way back to when we were talking about Muay Thai judging, and Muay Thai judging, the general consensus is that body kicks or kicks in general are going to score higher than punches. And I believe, I'm not necessarily sure if that's still the case with one. I assume so. But even if it wasn't the case, MMA gloves are the great equalizer, even if kicks score higher technically. Because somebody who had decent power with boxing gloves might be knocking everybody out with MMA gloves, especially in high-level Muay Thai. So the margin for error is... A little bit smaller when you're fighting this high level of guys in uh, one championship. And you got to just change it up because it's a Muay Thai fight, but it's, it's just different. It's not the same as what we're used to with uh, what we would call traditional Muay Thai in the ring. You know, to finish off that statement.
0: Ben, Gonzalez was trying to catch kicks and return fire. This is an effective strategy in MMA where you can catch and hit, then take your opponent down. But here, how effective was it for Gonsalves to catch superlex kicks when you're still having to get kicked? One of the things that I, I feel like uh, if you're just starting out watching or
1: participating in Muay Thai that you need to keep in mind is that if you catch a kick, that, that still counts as a kick that landed. From a scoring perspective, and so you want to do something of equal value to take those points back. Um, And if you're not if you're not able to do that, then um, then number one, it's a losing strategy from a points perspective. But uh, against somebody like Superlek, you you really got to have great technique for that catch because otherwise you can catch kicks all day and i'm sure he would take that because that's damage that you're still wearing unless you're stepping way out and you're you're catching with like perfect technique and even then it still hurts so yeah i mean it's a it's it's probably pays bigger dividends in mma because you can fall somebody to the ground and the fight continues and um in muay thai you have if you want to push them backwards you can take a maximum of two steps Right? and you have a limited amount of time. You can't just like hold their kick and, and uh, strike at them. The referee will break that up. So you, you're really on a timer from the point that you catch that kick. And it's a lot of, it's a lot of uh, pressure on top of the fact that you've already given away those points by letting that kick land.
0: A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content like early releases of Southpaw Deep Space Nine, break-free versions of our shows without interruptions like you're hearing now, Liberation Martial Arts Online, as well as our private chat group on Discord. You can also make one-time donations at Ko-Fi or show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. Next, let's talk about Pampayak Jip Mwang Nan versus Savas Michael, where we saw Pampayak finish Michael with a right hook head kick in round two. Ben, what are your thoughts about this fight?
1: Yeah, I uh, I, I took some notes while I was watching these fights and the first note that I put under this fight is just oof. <laughs> it's uh, it was rough to watch because you know, Michael is such a talented fighter and he spent so much time training so hard for a completely different opponent i think that that's probably the most important well it's an important thing to bring up as we're talking about this fight he was training for rod tang and rod tang missed weight failed the hydration test um and so he was switched with a last minute opponent who is also a super high level elite fighter um and you could argue that Tanfayak is a higher level fighter than Tang. and to take that on as a, a last minute opponent is a, a, <laughs> a that's a hard day's work for anybody. Um, but right off the bat, Tanfayak um, blocks one of Michael's teeps, lands his own teep, hits him with a hard leg kick, evades a teep to the leg, lands his own hard teep to the leg, and so right away he's proven that Michael. Is going to have a hard time hitting him. And whatever he throws, he's fast enough and has good enough technique that he's probably going to land with power. And I think that that had a big effect on the rest of the fight, as short as it was, because Michael was then really reticent to throw anything with full commitment. And against a a skilled Muay Thai fighter who is on balance, if you don't commit, then you're going to miss or you're going to get countered. And um, so he was from the beginning. He was never really he he didn't have a chance to be in this fight just because of I feel like what happened right at the beginning. And the ending was uh, another illustration of I think what uh, we've been talking about with that boxing guard. I think because he was so kind of gun shy about getting hit with such power and speed. Um, he was not managing the distance well. He was shelling up with that boxing guard. I wouldn't even. I don't even know if we could call it a boxing guard. It was more of like a oh shit guard, you know, <laughs> both hands up, covering as much uh, area as he could. And and the the final sequence you mentioned, he got knocked knocked out with a right hook and then put into the shadow realm with that head kick. But uh, what happened right before that kind of tells the story because Panpayak threw a jab, which Michael defended pretty effectively, um, with an extended arm, the kind of not exactly long guard style, but uh didn't just eat it on a high guard. But then what happened is Pontiac faked a cross, it was really subtle, but if you I watched it like fifty times, uh faked a cross that caused Michael to shell up in the way that he had been uh, up to that point, shell up and turn into it which left that opening for that right hook. And that's
0: how he ended up getting knocked out. Ron, what makes Pompayak's left kick so hard to see and block?
2: I feel like it's just repetitions upon repetitions. And as our uh, previous guest for a different show, Zach Goldrosen has said many times, you know, simple things done right. I mean, Pampayak has been fighting at an extremely high level for years. Even though he didn't get as much, uh, I would say, as the Gen Z say clout, as as Rod saying, for years, in my opinion, he was objectively the better fighter than Rod Sang. Even as long as they've trained together, on paper, he's just a he's just a better fighter overall. Which has nothing to do with how quote unquote bad Rod Tang is. He's not bad; like he's still one of the top Muay Thai fighters in the world. You know, so when you take that into account. You think you gotta think to yourself, shit, then how good is Panpayak if people were saying, like most people were like, yeah, you know, he's the better he's you know, head of the game. And his left kick, the way he sets it up, even though I guess you wouldn't call him like a boxing heavy fighter, he uses intelligent combinations and feints. Very subtle feints, but very subtle, but that's what you want, kinda want to in a feint, you know? Want it to be realistic enough to get your opponent to bait on it. That way you can open up something else, whether it be a punch or the kick. And specifically for his left kick, he manages to set that thing up at will against even other guys who are like at the top 10 in the stadium circuits, top 10 in the world, and he's able to tee off of them at will with that left kick. And even if he didn't already have the skills that he had, he would still present a difficult matchup because, as we talked about before, and as with the names, as oh, the namesake of the podcast, Southpaw, Southpaws are just difficult to fight in general. You know, if you to- take two evenly matched fighters and one of them is a Southpaw, the other is an Orthodox fighter, the Orthodox, fi- the orthodox fighter uh, is probably just going to have a hard time in general. They can still win, they're just going to have a little bit more of a difficult time. Whereas, you know, you put that situation there and you get somebody as high level as Ponpayak now you really got problems on your hand because not only is he a softball, he knows how to use it at the pinnacle of Muay Thai. And it's beautiful to watch, but I must say on a personal aside, I really feel bad for uh, for Michael just because as a fan of the sport and somebody who's watched, the, uh, watched him for years, you know, for those who don't know, uh, Savas Michael has been fighting – in Thailand, since he was a teenager, you know, he came all the way from Cyprus, has been living there full time for years, making his way through the stadiums, training at Pet D Academy, really probably, in my opinion, he's one of the hardest working, like, foreign fighters in the game. He's humble, he's a respectful dude, like, he just, he, he comes ready to fight all the time. And I really want to hit this point home, Ben already said it, but I really want to hit this point home, is that he was preparing for months for Rod Rotting is already a difficult fighter to deal with, and so now imagine you're preparing for him. Misses fails the hydration test, misses weight, and then somehow, I'm not going to allude to anything. I'm not going to speculate anything. But ironically, the guy you they replace him with happens to be his stablemate, and they both train at the same gym together. Like okay, and so I know there's a common trait, especially for those who have fought before. You know. We're told, especially at the lower end, you know, fighters gotta fight, you know, you gotta show up ready to fight, you gotta show up ready to fight. But at the end of the day, these people are still professional athletes. Michael Savaz, he's only a few months younger than me. He's 23 years old. And that was a really bad knockout. He just endured. He got knocked out with one punch, he got knocked out with the left kick. And then I don't know if y'all saw the way he fell down to the to on the mat. That was also bad too. So for his sake I'm, I hope he's able to be able to rest and recover. And I hope he does not, I hope nobody takes this fight away as anything as far as like, you know, there's levels to this and Pong Payak is on another level, but it has nothing to do with, you know, Subas, Michael's skill. And I, I personally believe he deserved better than what went down this past weekend because he's a really good fighter. I have so much respect for him. So like, I hope he's able to recover from this knockout and able to rest
0: a right hook is a close range punch. A head kick needs a little bit more clearance than when you throw a knee. So Ben, is a right hook to a left high kick a combo that requires a lot of dexterity? Or is that something you see often in Muay Thai? Is that a traditional classic combination? I mean, the answer to both questions can be yes, right?
1: Um, I think that anytime that that you're going left, right or right, left, that's, Pretty typical, Um, you know. And I—it's funny. I actually um, I carry one of those drums from the second Karate Kid movie in my bag. I bring it to the gym uh, with me, and it's such a bummer because every time I pull it out and I ask somebody, "Have you seen Karate Kid?" Almost all of them say no. So (laughs) nobody knows what I'm talking about. But I I think that you guys will understand what I'm talking about. Um, But that's that's how I teach. Uh, people sometimes both those, those logical combinations from going right side of your body, left side of your body, um, or just kicking mechanics, you know, how to lead with your hips and stuff like that. So anytime that you're, you're throwing something on the, on the right side that includes a big pivot, like a hook like that, that's going to load up your left kick. Um, you know, the, the distance that's, you know, that's up to the universe, um, <laughs> Whether or not you're going to have the distance for that depends on how close you were for the hook, if it landed, what happened after that. But actually going from that right side to that left side is something that includes a pivot, which can load up that second attack. That's, that's pretty intuitive
0: as far as these techniques go. It's called a pellet drum. And I also use that as a metaphor. or I sometimes show people a video of it when I'm trying to teach them like left, right punching combinations.
1: And do they ever look at you like you, they have no idea what you're talking about
0: because they haven't seen the movie because nobody has any culture. So if they're over 40, they know what I'm talking about, (laughs) even without me showing what it is, right? And if they're younger than that, then sometimes I have to find a video of it. (laughs) Yeah, that's what it is. It's the kids. (laughs) Which then at that point, right, the whole point of a metaphor is to speed up the learning process. So maybe I should rethink this because if I have to show a video (laughs) to people for them to then appreciate my metaphor maybe it's not really helping things that much maybe it's not really a shortcut maybe it's only a shortcut that's appropriate for people above a certain age yeah exactly or maybe i just carry one in my pocket like you do and just to show them the thing
1: yep i got one uh i don't even know where i got it i got it years ago and it comes with me in my bag everywhere and but, you know, just like you were saying, I, I end up having to explain it before I can <laughs> use it as a tool to teach
0: people. Yeah, yeah. You're all stoked to use this as a teaching tool and then nobody understands your teaching tool. <laughs> Next, let's talk about Nongo Guyang Hadao versus Liam Harrison, where Nongo won by leg kick TKO in round one. Going into the fight, many of the analysts were saying Nango had to watch out for Harrison's leg kicks. Even the One championship promos for this fight was saying the same thing. And this is something I've talked to both of you about. Harrison has a unique kick where it's not the classic Thai kick people are used to because it travels much more straight up and doesn't have the same hip turn, but lands much quicker and makes it easier to kick several times in a row. While everyone was looking at Harrison's kicks though, it ended up Nongo coming through with his own leg kicks that basically tore Harrison's leg in half. And it wasn't even like Harrison's leg was in a bad position or pointing inward. So Ben, break down this fight for us. Oh boy. Yeah, I uh, <clears throat> this
1: this is another situation where you look at it and you say that Liam Harrison is inarguably an elite level fighter. Right? He's been doing it for a while um, at a pretty high level. at at an elite level but there's there's just a difference between somebody that has been at the top of the stadiums in thailand for two decades who's one of the best of this generation um against you know one of the best western uh, muay thai fighters so for me watching this fight it was pretty clear early on and this Surprised me, and part of that is I think falling for the marketing, falling for the hype. Um, but the thing that I noticed pretty quickly in this fight is how big of a speed um, handicap Liam Harrison is at, and that's surprising because he's known for his speed, and that's part of why uh, the techniques that he used are are so effective and how he can be a little unconventional because he's fast enough to keep himself safe enough to do things a little bit differently than what you're classically taught. You alluded to that a little bit earlier with the way that he throws his leg kicks. Um, Just to tease that point out a little bit, typically when you're taught classical Muay Thai style for a leg kick, you want to step at a 45 degree angle um, and sink into your, your plant leg and throw that kick so that not only you get power, uh, delivered through the kick, but you're also stepping offline um, to reduce the, the the liability of punches coming straight down the middle. And Liam Harrison doesn't do that. He just fires the kick from where he's standing um, and he doesn't have to worry about those punches coming down the middle because he can kick and return back to his stance so quickly. Um, so it was a little surprising to me even though Nongo is one of my favorite fighters ever. And I'm very familiar with Liam Harrison's style. who's you know, seeing the two of them in the ring together, how much faster Nong O oh was than Liam Harrison was a little uh, surprising. And from, from pretty much the beginning, it, it was pretty clear to me that there was no way that Nong O oh was going to lose this fight unless something weird happened. Um, and something weird did happen, but not in that way. So, uh, everything that Nongo threw, he was able to commit to because he has the experience, he has the technique to know that when he throws something, he's throwing it at the right time and that he's as safe as he can be when throwing it. And that's, uh, I don't want to get too much into like, like, um, fight sports theory, but, you know, when you're standing in front of somebody with your guard up, you are as safe as you're going to get in a fight. Anything else beyond that is an opening, including throwing a strike. So, that's why to me, technique is so important, because every, you open yourself up if you want to do damage. Um, but Nongo was able to commit because he was, he was in a position where he didn't, didn't really have to fear uh, what was coming back. He got caught with a leg kick at one point uh, because he missed the body kick, I think. And that was, I think, the most significant strike that Liam Harrison was able to land in, in the course of the fight. What uh, what ended up happening is Nong o oh landed two really devastating leg kicks to the outside of Liam Harrison's knee, which is not the kind of place where you typically want to target with a low kick. Why not? Well... Um, because that's the the part of one's leg that you would use to block a kick. And if Liam Harrison was on balance, he wouldn't even have had to to raise his leg in order to check that kick. He would just have to turn it out so that the his knee was pointing out instead of straight ahead. Um but the fact that he was not in a position to do that allowed those kicks to land on the side of his knee and they ended up being obviously very devastating. Um, and I don't I don't actually remember exactly how that happened on the first kick. I think it was just you know a, a speed and and a positioning thing. But on the one that ended up laying him out, what Liam Harrison did is he put himself completely out of position. Um, completely gave himself no chance to uh, effectively block the kick because he he did what's called an L step, which is that he um rather than stepping backwards or stepping to the right he moved backwards with his front leg first and what he ended up doing he did it with a little hop and so he went from in a good fighting stance to basically um standing square with his opponent with his feet a little bit further apart than they would normally be and when you take an l step you put yourself first out of position with that half step and then you regain your position by moving the other leg. So the, the next piece of footwork for him should have been moving his uh, right foot back to put him back in his orthodox fighting stance. But since Nongo was perfectly on balance and had the experience to, to see that opening, he fired the kick. And so rather than being able to move his, uh, his right foot back to get himself back into his fighting stance, Liam Harrison had to try to check that kick with his left foot or his left leg, and he wasn't in position to do that. And he caught it again on the outside of his knee, and that's what ended the fight. So it was this is this wasn't a long fight, and it wasn't replete with technical errors by any stretch, but any extraneous movement like that against the on balance and experienced, technically sound Muay Thai fighter could potentially get punished. Um, and so that's, that's the end of the fight. But let me go back in time a little bit because we're talking about the fight in totality. And I think that um, one of the things that had an effect as well is is that speed discrepancy caused Liam Harrison to lose confidence in his strikes. I think it was twice he threw body kicks that weren't even... Blocked, but uh, maybe landed on uh, Nago's arms, or just missed completely. And Liam Harrison almost lost balance, almost fell down uh, because he was leaning back because he was not confident enough to commit to those strikes. And so when you're when you're for whatever reason um, gun shy about committing to your techniques, then that's you lose. Um, a lot of the possibility of making any sort of a, a comeback, because then you're just kind of fighting not to get hit, rather than actually trying to score points yourself.
0: One thing I noticed was that Nongo kept throwing teeps to Liam Harrison's lead leg. Ben, why go to the leg instead of to the body? Yeah, I think that that's a really good question, and that that
1: bore itself out actually pretty early on in the fight. It might have been the first. That's thrown. Um, I would have to go back and check, but the one of the first, if not the first, teeps, which is a, a front push kick in Muay Thai that Nong-O threw, you could see that Liam Harrison swept his lead arm down to try to parry, and he obviously thought that it was going to be teeth to the body, and that's that's one of the best reasons to throw that. Uh, teeth to the leg instead of the body because you um, obviate the ability of your opponent to react in time to parry it. So if they're if they're used to a teeth coming to the body and they circle their lead arm or whichever arm they choose uh, down to parry it, then and you land it to the leg, then they don't have a chance to parry it, and also now they've given you an opening in attempting to parry it. So it's just a, you know, it's just a a hitting the closer target situation and um, uh, just a way to evade that defense.
0: Ron, what made Nongo's leg kicks so successful against the kicker? Or Nongo just successful with everything, period?
2: Yeah, I would argue that, like, Nongo, especially after this fight, like, Liam is probably, you could put him on a list, top five most elite Muay Thai fighters who are outside of Thailand right now. And for Nango to shut him down in the first round, not only in the first round, but with the same weapon that Liam used as his trademark, goes to show not only are there levels to this, but anybody who calls themselves a Muay Thai enthusiast, I know we love Sanchai and Boyacow, but we're going to have to start considering Nongo, like a generational talent, you know, greatest of this generation. We're going to have to start having that conversation very soon because even if you watch his previous fights, like let's say you're a fighter trying to fight Nongo, you watch his previous fights. What area is he really that weekend? Are you going to outbox him? Because we've seen him knock out multiple high-level opponents with the same punch. going to outkick him? Well, we saw what happened this past fight. <laughs> All right, well, you deal with the leg kicks. Well, he's got almost a basically unblockable rear body kick. And then one thing that I also noticed in the fight is that at first, before he started teeing off with the leg kicks, I thought he was going to getting ready to load up on a head kick because another technique that Liam has outside of his leg kicks, his leg kicks are his bread and butter for sure, but the way he sets up those leg kicks is with, a left hook, a lead left hook that he hits extremely hard with. As somebody who has had the pleasure of being able to watch Liam Harrison fight live when I myself have uh, fought on – I actually have uh, fought on an undercard when he was fighting. And so I've seen him throw that left hook live, and I can hear, even with a loud crowd, all the cheering, I can still hear it make contact with his opponent just to get perspective on how hard he hits. For a man who fights at 140 pounds or some change. So usually he sets it up with that. And I think Nong O probably watched some film because it looked like he was waiting to set up a lead head kick when he was when Liam was trying to set up that left hook into the into the leg kick. However, I think when I rewatched the fight uh recently, I think the reason those leg kicks did as much damage as they did is they would be considered technically calf kicks from what I saw, especially the second one. And also based on Liam's reaction to where he just didn't, he couldn't even get his leg up at all. He couldn't move. He couldn't bend and he couldn't do anything with it, which goes to show one, how fast Nongo is two how powerful he is in all strikes. So when you get somebody who who's as uh, fast as Nongo as technical as him, and that speed and that technicality translates into full power on every shot because he's never in bad position, then, you know, you've got a real problem on your hands, you know? Dongo has been at this for a very long time. He's been fighting against uh, against fighters that we would consider, like, greatest of all time before one was even really a thing. And for him to still be competing at this high of a level and dominating Younger tie fighters, elite foreigners for him to still be dominating this like this for this long you know it's impressive to watch and I hope people really like are able to tune in on this guy because he's like he's he's probably you know he gets more a few more wins like this over top level tie opponents you know elite foreigners you know you're gonna you're gonna have to put him on the top three with the Sanchais, the Boy Cows, the Lurzulas of the world, you know what I'm saying? Like, this was a really, this is about as high as level as you can get in current Muay Thai. And it's beautiful to watch, painful to watch, but extremely beautiful to watch. Like, Nongo encapsulates Muay Thai done right. And I love to I love to watch it. I'm a huge fan, personally. And as a coach and as a fighter, as a student of the game, like, you know, that's the that's the type of fighter that everybody should be watching if they're in the Muay Thai, if they train Muay Thai.
0: What I noticed about Nango's leg kicks was that he was finding an opportunity to land it. And he made this read. I don't know if you watch film. Um, I haven't watched enough of Harrison's fights to even tell you what his habits are. But Nango read that Harrison was doing these reset steps. So Ben talked about this a little bit with the L-step, but that was like one way he reset. But it's kind of a psychological trigger that I noticed in this fight is every time he got hit, whether he blocked it or not, the way it hit him, maybe it hit him hard or maybe to Ben's point, it hit faster than he was expecting. So he would have to hop back and regroup and just kind of like shake himself out.
2: To add to that, he does do that in a lot of his fights. I've watched a lot of Liam's fights. He does that a lot in a lot of his fights. So either Nongo saw that The moment they first fall and he's like, oh, he's going to do this every time. Or he probably watched film because there's a lot of film of Liam doing that. So I didn't even think about that. But you're 100 percent right.
0: So when I normally see that type of regrouping or reset step, it's two different things, right? There's a technique there that people do, but also the technique is really about the psychology. They're doing that technique because mentally they need to take a break. I think Ben has mentioned to me how he doesn't like it when people like take turns hitting each other. So, it's a bit of that psychology, right? It's like, okay, we just collided. I need to step back and take a break before I come back in, right? Which, for cardio reasons or just for uh, rhythm and flow reasons, whatever, this is something people do. There's no judgment against it. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that's what Nong O was reading. What I normally see at high levels, whether it's MMA or the Muay Thai fights I watch or kickboxing or even boxing, is when people, do that regrouping and somebody wants to counter it, they usually know they're going to step back in and they counter them as they're coming back, right? That is still a high level counter. But then Nago took it a step above to this elite level counter where he's not even going to wait for Harrison to come back is as he's resetting his feet and his feet are square. So one time was with the L step. The other time was he was just skipping backwards. But if I freeze frame that, if I took a snapshot, you couldn't tell are different techniques because. Both times, Harrison's legs were square. And so he was kicking him every time his feet were square as he was resetting. And then that was it. Like, you're just in such a bad position at that point. And I think that was set up by the success he was having. Then Harrison needed to reset. And he didn't even allow him that chance to reset. He's not like doing this gentleman's agreement of like, oh, I'll let you hop back and then come back. We touch gloves and we like throw down again. I think that's one of those things where when people see it, they're like, he's fighting like he's sparring. They don't know exactly what they mean by that, but they know it when they see it. They know what sparring looks like. And that's something you do in sparring where you get caught with something. You're like laugh and tease each other. And it's all about like being respectful and having fun. And then you step back and you go at it again. Right. But Nago wasn't sparring. He was going hard and he was going with his like best vision, his like a game. Whereas Harrison, I think, was having a hard time finding his way into the fight. And he wasn't even realizing that he was exposing himself when he was resetting and regrouping. It's probably something he's always done and nobody's taken advantage of it. Or maybe if they have taken advantage of it, it hadn't caused him enough problems for him to not have that habit anymore. And also, even if he has that habit, who's going to have the speed and the timing to catch him, right? So that is a testament to Nango, at least in this fight. I don't know his full body of work. So I think that the what we were just talking about that
1: happened with the fight between Longo and Liam Harrison was pretty emblematic of most of the fights. if not all the fights that we've been talking about up to this point. Um, You mentioned that, that reset and re-engage habit. And that's the thing that I was noticing the most in the, in the first fight of uh, Martin versus kitchen, which is that neither of them were, were uh, like tactically, closing the distance and so basically what it tu- you what you end up with is it turns into jousting right if you if you you know if you get into a position where you're you're landing and like you're having success then when your opponent steps back you should step forward and and maintain that advantage cuz otherwise it's just like you're running into each other and hoping that in the next 50/50 you have the advantage and it was that's why Martin won is because in those those uh collision she had the advantage um but also in the the rest of the the fights that were kind of thai versus uh foreigner that it played out in the same way i think that it was in the uh Pompeo versus gonzalves fight gonzalves did a, a better job of not breaking his base in the same way that you see from something like a an L step or one of those preset steps that you're talking about but there was a i think there was a moment. I think it was in this fight. I didn't. I don't have this in my notes, but he uh, did a big switch to like big jump switch his stance, and Pontiac immediately, as soon as he landed back into like a his switch stance, blasted him with a leg kick. And that's the sort of thing that you can do if you are on balance and you you have a good understanding of muay thai. And that's why I was talking earlier about. Um, you know stripping things away as opposed to adding things when you don't have that extraneous movement and you're on balance then when you see those openings then you can take advantage of them and that's exactly what happened like you're talking about with the fight between nongo and liam Harrison. so kind of a theme for the for the entire night
2: and this is something i personally notice a lot having a lot of experience in muay thai in the west and even going out to thailand for a month when i wanted to stay out there longer but even in the month that i was there first thing i noticed was that as far as my technique they shaved off a lot of things that i just really didn't need and whereas i come when you you know when you come up training in the west you're the focus because a lot of western coaches genuinely want to do muay thai the right way and they don't want to have a bastardized version of muay thai that really is just kickboxing or I wouldn't even call it striking for MMA because striking for MMA is just looks so much different from like traditional Muay Thai like it's not fair to call either of them similar things but you know a lot of people are so want to have that like Thai style that ironically because they're so caught up trying to imitate they miss it. they miss the forest for the trees where the Thai style is literally everything that we all know they know the same punches same elbow, same kick, same knees, what's the difference? Well, they don't feel the need to add any extra movement because if you have proper balance, your foot positioning is is in the right place, hand positioning is in the right place, you have an active guard, then you don't necessarily need to add things, but you just need to repeat things and just instill that repetition and develop that muscle memory. Whereas even if you listen to MMA commentary, which we're going to get into in the next fight, you know, footwork, good footwork, does not necessarily mean moving around and flying around the cage or hopping around the cage or the ring all the time. Sometimes good footwork actually means being what we would consider flat-footed, staying planted, staying strong, reacting to strikes being seen. That way you have a strong base to come back with a strong and fast counter that doesn't require you to move out of position or t- have to technically or physically be the faster fighter even though you are faster you're just not wasting energy and wasting movement on something that you don't need to waste movement on you know you don't have to put yourself out of position to have good footwork
1: so now this is southpaw right so let me let me let me hit you with this opinion in the west capitalism makes your muay thai worse
2: yes yes <laughs> yes
1: <laughs> yes what at a, at a basic level what i what i tell people a lot is that anybody that wants to teach you 700 different techniques has something to sell you right <laughs> and uh <laughs> and it and i think it's true i think that uh you know people try to keep it interesting people try to have the secret weapon and just like you were just saying in in thailand if you if you've been training here for a while if you go over to thailand the biggest gain that you get Muay Thai is the things that they take away, the the calm that it puts in your technique, the efficiency, the uh, removing the extra wasted movements that can get you on balance to do things like capitalize on openings like we saw in all these fights
0: that we're talking about. If you love the Southpaw project, become one of our financial supporters. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week. And you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. We can't exist without your contributions. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at Southpawpod.com. Now let's talk about Demetrius Johnson avenging his loss to Adriano Moraes by flying Niko. This was under one MMA rules where you can knee a downed opponent. We saw a momentum shift where Marias nearly finished Johnson in round one for Johnson to turn things around from round three forward. Ron, how did Johnson go from losing to winning?
2: This is going to actually go back to what we were talking about earlier about the hydration test, specifically regarding Adriano Marias, who I do consider to be a good fighter. But one, how the fuck do you lose weight and get more hydrated to pass the hydration test that you originally failed when you weighed more. And the reason I bring that up is because, one, Adriano Moraes is not what we would consider a uh, United States flyweight. He looks bigger than half the Bantamweights in the UFC, in my opinion. And I think that played into this current fight because he really gassed near the end of the second round in the third round, and say what you want about Johnson, even if he gives up a size disparity, he will not get tired. I will tell you, like, if anything has, if we've seen anything about Demetrius Johnson, he is good to go for five rounds. He has what? How many title defenses do he has in the UFC? Like 13? Like, how many? Like, he has, he's going, he's been going five rounders for years. So if you're, if your cardio is not correct against Demetrius Johnson, good luck. Because Marias was doing excellent in the first two rounds, you know. He was staying aggressive, he was shutting down Demetrius Jocks's footwork, but you know, DJ wasn't getting tired. So if you're not getting tired, then you better pray that your cardio is just as good as his. Otherwise, he's gonna come back real fast on you, which we saw in the third round, where as soon as, you know, he started getting his reads together, getting his footwork, it was getting he was landing flush on Marias every single time. Out of the way, boom, connected, boom, out of the way, connected, connected, connected. And Marias just did not have an answer. And you could see his eyes start to change in the fight. Like, oh shit, I do not have the energy to keep up with his output, which is the downside of a weight cut. <laughs> you cut that much weight, you know, you might lose a round or two just because your body might not be able to go the full, the full fight effectively. And DJ took advantage of that and just swarmed him. And He's probably like the last MMA fighter I see right now to where like the evasive movements, switch dances, neo footwork is really working for him. And he's, I think like he's the only fighter now that is like, it's still effective for him, in my opinion, you know? And he just showed out. He sh- He showed everybody why he's considered one of the GOATs in MMA in that third round. I mean, he looked damn near like the best fighter on the planet that round. <laughs> just he was just styling on Mariah and then that knee in the end like he purposely did that it was a statement like yeah that was just a one-time thing and you ain't never getting it back again like I'm not letting it happen again and for those who don't know you know DJ was training at Fight Ready with Henry Cejudo and Fight Ready is definitely about to be on the top of the list of with the American top teams the well, I was going to say Sanford MMA, but I guess now they they're what? Kill Cliff MMA? <laughs> Kill Cliff, Sanford, whatever what are they call it. They call a bunch of other things for it. And i ain't even going to get into all that. But like whatever they're doing at fight ready, as much as I hate Henry Cejudo, they're doing something right at fight ready as far as how they're prepping these fighters, because DJ was on point this fight. And, you know. He got the belt back, and based on one's flyweight division, especially the activity of their MMA fighters in general, I don't really see anybody taking that belt from him for a while, unless he just gets that old, loses his chin, or there's they introduce a beast into the flyweight division. But outside of that, you know, I don't think anybody in that division has a whole lot to offer him if he's gonna look like that in his next fight, and if he stays that fight ready, you
1: know.
0: Ben, Johnson gave up a lot of reach in this fight. How was Johnson getting in on the taller fighter? I think that that goes back to one of the things that Ron was talking about earlier. Uh,
1: when, you, when you factor in how small gloves, small MMA gloves change a fight. Um, because things like head movement and that evasiveness become a lot more important. Um, not just because you can, you can, uh, maybe damage somebody more if you don't have as much padding, but also, uh, from a defensive perspective, you shell up with big gloves. It's a lot different than shelling up and trying to protect yourself from somebody wearing four ounce gloves. Right. And so, um, DJ was able to use his movement, the footwork that Ron was just talking about, uh, to great effect and the, the final sequence. Uh, i think that it was a a cross that stunned Marias and then he followed up with the knee as a ko but that cross was set up by classic boxing uh slip They slip to the uh outside and i oh got the outside the inside i actually don't remember um somebody's gonna <laughs> there we go um i don't i don't want somebody tweeting at me right um but yeah he 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 slipped a punch, put him in position to land that shot that stunned him, and that's how he was able to, to finish his fight. And that's, I mean, that's one of the things that DJ does so well is, um, is getting himself in position. So we talked a little bit about that Matrix-style uh, shifty footwork, and I think the biggest thing that differentiates what DJ does from somebody like Dominic Cruz or even uh, somebody that does it similar, but to a, a, a different extent, like TJ Dillashaw, is that if you watch DJ's feet, he very rarely brings them together. So he'll, he'll walk into a switch stance, or, and maybe sometimes he'll, he'll rhythm step or, or do one of those uh, resets. But whenever he does that, he's almost always out of range. And so he's not providing that as an opportunity. But um, one of the things that I I talk to people about when they're they're trying to um, get their footwork more fluent is don't necessarily worry about the techniques that take you from A to B. I think the most important thing that you should uh, think about is just not bringing your feet together. And I like to imagine that I have like a, a spacer bar running from one ankle to the other, um, and I practice my footwork like that, and then. You can whatever you do, you know that you're not going to to mess yourself up by bringing your feet together and, and um, not in a position to deploy either your offense or your defense. I mean, DJ's technique is just great everywhere. You know his his grappling, his striking, um, and specifically his striking for MMA that incorporates the same sort of head movement and evasiveness of Boxing that is not as common or
0: even as advisable in Muay Thai. All right, Ben. Why don't we close out by giving you a chance to give us your best training tips and advice for beginner strikers? <laughs> oh man!
1: Um, <laughs> anybody that has has heard me talk about the answer to this question knows what's coming. Um, you gotta, you gotta hit the bag, man. Um, If you go to class and you do partner drills or even if you do um pad work like you just don't get enough reps to build that technique you have to hit the bag you need to to get enough repetitions to get that muscle memory so that you can land things so you can be on balance to um to land your strikes and you can't do that just with partner drills and just doing uh, pad work with a coach unless you have unlimited money and a personal coach. Right. So number one is hit the bag. Um, <laughs> you know, I actually, we talked about this and we talked about, uh, making a list of like the top, uh, training tips. And I have a, a list in a Google doc. <laughs> next, so maybe I'll write that up uh, someday, but, uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta have a coach that you can trust and learn what it feels like to do it right and then do it enough so that you can create that feeling within yourself consistently and that applies to defensive technique uh, as well as offensive
0: technique so practice your footwork and hit the bag ron same question for you
2: one yes please use the heavy bag like that is probably going to be one of your best tools as far as repetition technique development and to add on to that i would say also you know keep it as simple as possible and also understand your phys- your body and what i mean by that is that you might fare better with certain techniques based on your body type than other people and this is more common in gra- i guess i would say this is more common in grappling but I tend to see this a lot in striking as well. Well, you know, I've been I've wrestled, I've done jujitsu, and there are certain things that like I've had coaches tell me to do that because I'm not six foot two and two hundred and thirty pounds, I'm not doing that shit. Like I can't like, sorry, dude, I can't just, you know, blow by people <laughs> like you can. I know you're using technique, but I'm just I just don't have the body type to do that. So that's also an important thing to keep in mind with certain techniques that you learn. And another thing, you know, especially as a beginner. And this is also the easiest thing to do you can do cuz so I know even with a heavy bag you might have to get a set up in your home. You might have to go to the gym to do that or stay after class. But really the easiest thing you can do if you have a mirror, shadow box. Just shadow box for anywhere, hell, anywhere from 5, 10, 15 minutes. You can increase it as much as you want especially as you progress. But shadow boxing and really just taking your time like going through the techniques, even shadow boxing a jab cross for five to 10 minutes, you're still getting in reps. And if you have a mirror at your disposal, you can see where you're not extending, where your hands are at. Is your chin tucked in? Is your stance proper? That's all stuff that is going to matter. And it's going to carry through for as long as you continue to train. You know, we can go through all the fancy techniques, the theory you want, but like a good jab cross that takes years to develop. It's very you don't get to see a lot of people with good jab crosses, you know, even in the regular training environment. Because again, at, to Ben's point, previous point, like capitalism makes for shitty martial artists because we all want to just do so much and just go, go to the next thing. This, the next thing we saw on fucking Instagram or IG Reels, the next techniques. Here's the new technique that we all like. You don't have to do any of that if you know six punches, two round kicks. Keeps on both sides, knees, elbows, you're good. You're okay. We can progress from there. Keep it simple. Shadow box. practice as much as you can. And most importantly, make sure you're having fun with it. That's really, make sure you enjoy your having fun. Do things that are fun because if it's fun, you're not going to be thinking about it. And then you can do that over and over again.
0: All right. Thank you both for coming on the show.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for having us.
0: Yeah, this has been really fun. And if you like this episode and you like what we do, support us on Patreon. We also have the Liberation Martial Arts program if you want to train with us from wherever you are. There's lots of techniques, exercises, theory, pedagogy, and even political theory, believe it or not. You can also find Liberation Martial Arts online on our Patreon. You can find Southpaw merch at our store. You can find all pertinent links on the show notes. With all that said, thanks for listening.